What up, world? Welcome back to another episode of Lockdown Blazers. I am your pass-first point guard and Blazers beat writer Mike Richmond. Game 7 Magic wore off in a very real way on Tuesday night as the Blazers went into Oracle Arena and lost Game 1 against the defending champs, 116-94. We're going to dive all into what happened in Game 1. I'll do a little hunting for some silver linings. I'll talk about possible adjustments, and we'll look ahead to what Game 2 means for the Blazers. But first, let's start with what happened on the court. We'll just whip around very quickly a recap of Game 1. The Blazers started bad. Poorly, I should say. They turned the ball over six times in the first quarter. They trailed by as many as seven, but they kept it within striking distance, which would be a theme throughout the opening three quarters of this game. The end of the first half, they were still right there, from down four to down nine, thanks to two late Steph Curry threes. More on those threes and how he got them later. And then, yet, despite all their problems, and 18 total turnovers leading to 28 points after three quarters, an absolute meltdown after they took care of the ball, and saved their season in Game 7 on Sunday. They were only down six. But the fourth quarter wasn't kind to them. They gave up nearly 40 points to the Warriors. The last two and a half minutes were basically full garbage time, so you can throw out about five of those 39 points. But they gave up, you know, say they gave up 35 in the fourth quarter, outscored by 16, ended up losing the game handily by 22. That was their largest deficit all night. But they just never could get all the way back after, you know, they, they were within six at the end of the quarter. They got they cut it to nine a couple times after falling behind by double digits, but they never truly threatened in the fourth quarter. And they, and they never truly threatened for a variety of reasons. Specifically, this this game, like all the games, is going to be about stars. And on Sunday, where Damian Lillard wasn't very good, C.J. McCollum played as well as you can possibly play and was an absolute stud. Two days after that, perhaps mentally and physically draining game seven in Denver, the Blazers' stars didn't play like stars. Lillard finished four of 12, 19 points, did most of his damage to the foul line where he went 9 of 9. CJ McCollum, 7 of 19 from the field, 1 of 5 from 3. He had 17. Damian Lillard committed 7 of the Blazers' 21 turnovers. And on unlike other nights where the Blazers have gotten help from other guys, other than Rodney Hood, and we'll talk about him too coming up, nobody else really did much. Uh, Mo Harkless had 17, but... Uh, it was kind of an ugly 17. I don't think he was bad. I, I don't want to say that about Mo, but it, this wasn't a, this wasn't a, oh man, Mo has 17. They're really doing stuff. Uh, he kind of scored in um, filling in the cracks when the Blazers offense was otherwise sputtering. Uh, they only scored more, they, you know, they finished with 94 points, but they didn't even crack the 25 point mark in three of the four quarters, 23, 22, 23 in the first, second and fourth quarters. That's probably not good enough. They were able to ugly up the game enough against the Warriors to keep it close. But they really didn't take advantage of things they could take advantage of. And as I mentioned, the stars for the Blazers, I should mention the people who really changed this game. Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, the Warriors' two stars. The Warriors, of course, were without Kevin Durant. 
He's missing game one and almost certainly game two, and there's some speculation that there could be more than game one or game two. So it's just the Splash Brothers at all tonight, but Steph Curry and Klay Thompson combined to go 22 of 45 from the floor, 12 of 24 from three. Steph Curry alone hit nine three-pointers. So Steph and Clay are 22 of 45 from the floor. Damon CJ are 11 for 31. As as much as anything to point out, it's just the number of shots. The Warriors defense did such a better job at limiting the shots that Damon CJ were able to take. They forced the ball out of Dame's hand. Sometimes he made the right decision and his teammates didn't back him up on the back end of the play. And other times, he just turned the ball over, either getting too deep in the lane or trying to throw an, a sort of jumping overhand bounce pass that got intercepted. But the Warriors looked like, I don't know if they looked like the champs, but they certainly looked like the better team on Tuesday night. And they probably didn't play as well as they could could play. The Blazers played pretty poorly, uh, particularly on offense, just couldn't get it going. And my read on this is, is I think people want to talk about this sort of... uh, physical fatigue of playing of playing seven games and turning around and playing a game two nights later to me I'm I, I'm certain that's a factor you know Rodney Hood who who hyperextended his knee in that game seven and didn't play the final 17 minutes of that game 18 minutes of that game he came back and played I don't think that was a big surprise I think there was some speculation from some Portland media members that maybe the Blazers would be cautious with him in game one uh from I'm I'm obviously very far away from the team right now some 900 miles, but uh, I didn't really think that that was likely. I I always assumed maybe foolishly that Rodney Hood would play, even if he was a little banged up. It's not the time of year that you um, sit out a game and figure it out later in the week, because later in the week, your season might be over. But I don't think this was mental fatigue or, or or, you know, having a guy play on only one good leg and the ESPN broadcast even showed Damian Lord grabbing at his hamstring if you want to point to injuries or, or sort of physical fatigue as a reason I'm sure there's plenty of uh, plenty of evidence for that but to me I think this game came down to a sort of a mental fatigue uh, the switch over from how sort of hyper game plan specific you have to be in the playoffs and how locked in the Blazers were to that Denver series and what they wanted to do and guys' principles and how they wanted to guard certain actions and how they wanted to guard stars, how they wanted to treat everybody. Seems like they just didn't have that sort of sharpness tonight. A lot of just sloppy, dumb things. Not just the turnovers, but a really puzzling defensive trend. Uh, And that's what I want to talk about in the second segment is the Blazers did a lot of things wrong in this game. And before I hunt for some silver linings, I want to talk about what the obvious glaring issues that cost them in this one. But before I do that, I want to tell you guys all about ZipRecruiter. Hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on. ZipRecruiter is just a great job source. It sends... Your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans through thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter, get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. 
It's 24 hours for those of you counting at home. So right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash LockedOn. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash LockedOn. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, welcome back. So we, get, we did a quick whip through what happened. We looked at the stars being stars. Th- th- that's going to decide this series. The Blazers cannot win a, this series without Damon CJ, one of them being very good, probably both of them being very good. That's not what it was tonight. But the most troubling thing to come out of game one was just how the Blazers tried to defend the best shooter of all time. By my count, four of Steph Curry's nine, and I'm, I'm just charting this from my couch, so... Uh, there's a chance that the uh, sports view numbers have a different tracking when we get to it. But from, from my charting on my couch, four of Steph Curry's nine makes and six total of his three-pointers were wide the hell open. Um, and I would characterize that by him being wide the hell open. I don't care about math. I don't care about um, necessarily the contest. I'm talking about just a wide open walk into it three. I charted six of those in this game. Four of them he cashed in. And a lot of that is just because the way the Blazers are are defending not just Steph Curry in the pick and roll. And I think that's the big thing that's going to get a lot of attention, so we should talk about that now. And this is mostly an Ennis Cantor thing, the sort of can, can't play Cantor stuff may have finally caught up with him against the best team in the world. But if it happens in the Western Conference Finals, I think the Blazers fans will have to take it. But when Steph Curry's coming off pick and rolls, Ennis Cantor is defending Steph Curry the way that the Blazers have defended pick and rolls for about four years, and the way that they have specifically instructed slower big men such as him and Mason Plumley to really treat pick and roll ball handlers, which is drop way the hell back, sink into the paint, and dare guys to take mid-range jumpers. The problem is, the Warriors set a bunch of really good screens. Uh, you can question whether they're legal or not, but Andrew Bogut has been setting really good screens for quite some time. Kevon Looney is a good screener. Draymond Green is a good screener. They set great screens for Steph on the ball, and he just comes off that screen, and he isn't thinking about driving into the paint and taking a mid-range jumper. He's thinking of taking a 25-footer, and he's walking into three-pointers on those pick-and-rolls. That is just a glaring issue and something they got to fix, and it makes you think, if, if that's the way Cantor is going to defend in his sort of natural way... Is he the guy that needs to be on the floor? Now, when Zach Collins was in there, he didn't do much better. He gave up one of these wide-open threes. But he was, instead of like Cantor, where Cantor's, you know, 8, 9, 11 feet off the ball, Zach was maybe 6 feet off the ball. Didn't matter. Steph Curry still walked into an open, uncontested three-pointer. That's an adjustment the Blazers can make. But in addition... Uh, I think the pick-and-roll coverage will get a lot of attention, and I think it's huge because uh, the Warriors are going to wear that out if if the Blazers keep doing it. But just the way the Blazers are treating uh, Golden State big men in general, I think is is telling, and and it's an issue, quite frankly. Uh, Kevon Looney doesn't have a ton of offense. Uh, He just doesn't. He's He's a limited offensive player. Andrew Bogut barely shoots. He's, not, he's probably not going to shoot a, a real shot other than putbacks this entire series if he doesn't absolutely have to. So when they're on the court, the Blazers' bigs are dropping all the way back into the paint because they're ignoring them offensively, right? Um, this seems like a reasonable way to approach defensive 
or big men or no offensive players just with no offensive game is totally sag off them go help here's the problem though and the Warriors have leveraged this for years Steph Curry is always moving without the ball Klay Thompson is really good at it too so they'll give up the ball your big man sags into the paint and his man who is now not being guarded at all just goes and sets a screen an off-ball screen particularly when the ball goes into the post or when the ball's on the opposite side of the floor an unguarded big man Kavon Looney or uh or Andrew Bogut just sets sets a screen for Clay, sets a screen for Steph, and then they can curl off that screen and shoot knowing that the screener's defender is somewhere else, 12, 15 feet away, playing kind of no-man's-land help defense. So while the pick-and-roll stuff is really troubling, the way the Blazers are just treating the Warriors' big men fed into a lot of the open looks that Steph Curry and Clay Thompson got tonight, particularly Steph Curry. Now, I don't think there's some sort of like magic strategy that here's how you lock these dudes up. In fact, I don't think anyone's figured that out for five years. What the Rockets did against Steph Curry is they guard him really tough. They switch absolutely every pick and roll, and they hope that he missed. And lucky, in that series, he did miss a bunch of threes, even some open ones, some makeable ones. He had some truly bad halves, some tr- so a couple of bad games. Some of that was the way the Rockets make him work on defense, some foul trouble keeping him out of rhythm and stuff like that, but some of them were just straight-up bricks. There isn't necessarily a great way to defend this guy other than prey, but the Blazers, what they did tonight was the absolute wrong way to defend this guy. Now, before I get into some silver linings, let's talk about another, another thing that I think went wrong tonight. And I would like to tell you guys that this is coming from perhaps Al Farouk Aminu's biggest supporter in the media. I have been the guy who's been writing for four years that Al Farouk Aminu is A, a power forward and you should play him there, and B, good. He's a good player. He's good. They should keep playing him. I think for a long time, basically up until now, Al Farouk Aminu had been consistently the Blazers' fourth best player for like three straight seasons. I don't know if you can play him much more in this series. I think he is at best a spot minute experiment. Uh, They're not guarding him on defense. He's not hurting people by cutting into space. He's not... On the other end, he isn't locking people up defensively. Uh, You know, they're not... They didn't even use him against either of the guards. So uh, his value guarding Andre Iguodala isn't particularly useful. But... Chief is teetering towards unplayable. I think you can sneak some minutes for Anis Cantor because his offense in the post and his offensive rebounding presents some problems, although I would play him a lot less. I think it's time to get Chief out of that starting lineup. I think the Blazers have to, have to, have to start Rodney Hood at the three and Moharkos at the four in game two. I think that's their best group. To be quite honest, I think Terry Stotts knows that that's their best group. It's a lineup that he went with a bunch, either with Ennis Cantor at center or with Zach Collins at center. But I think that has to happen. The Blazers need another offensive player on the floor. They weren't guarding particularly well. I mean, the shooting numbers were low, the scoring numbers were low, but it wasn't because the Blazers were playing great defense. Both teams are pretty loose with the ball. Blazers incredibly loose with the Warriors, believably loose. But the Blazers need more offense on the floor. They need Rodney Hood in the game. He's pretty clearly their best offensive wing. Not even pretty clearly. He is their best offensive wing, uh, depending on how you categorize C.J. McCollum, who I would say is probably a wing too, but whatever. He's their third best scorer. They got to play him. They got to play him a bunch. Uh, I don't know if 
what his knee can handle, but you got to figure it out. The other thing is, I don't know if you start Collins, but I think Collins needs to play 35 plus minutes and Cantor needs to be the guy who's playing six minutes a half, you know, you know, 12, 13 minutes a night. I don't know if Collins is ready. I don't know if Collins is necessarily a good solution. I don't think he played great tonight. But he's definitely the best option for big men you have. If you don't just play Mo Harkless or Al Farouk Aminu at five, I think that's fairly unlikely that Terry Stotts will go to the straight-up tiny lineup and like either insert Rodney Hood or Evan Turner on the wing. So I think Zach Collins has to play a ton of minutes. I think that's how you survive this one. I think Rodney Hood and Zach have to play. I think Rodney's got to start. I think you just try to steal some minutes for Chief here and there off the bench. I'm a huge Al Farouk Aminu fan. I've probably gone on record, and if I haven't, I'll say it now. I think the Blazers should try to re-sign him. I know the rest of uh, much of Rip City doesn't agree with me and they're ready to move on from him, but I have long been a member of, you know, maybe even driving the Chief bandwagon, but we've reached a point in the playoffs, in these high-leverage games where his lack of offensive production and his lack of defensive impact, you got to move on from him. He was really good in that first round, helped the Blazers a lot, hasn't found a shot in the playoffs. I think it's got to be, I think you got to go Rodney Hood. All right, I promise you guys some silver linings. In the third segment, I'll find them and talk a little bit about what to expect in game two. All right, welcome back. Still locked on Blazers, still Mike Richmond. So what went right for the Blazers? I talked a lot of, I've talked a lot of negativity in this one, and y'all know me, that's kind of my sweet spot. Negativity is where I thrive. So I'm going to try to go out of my comfort zone and talk about things that actually went right for the Blazers. Here's some things that actually went right. Legitimately. Through three quarters, the Blazers were shooting under 37% from the field. 23 of 63. They missed a cool 40 shots. They were 6 of 19 from deep. And yet they were only down 7 on the road against the best team in the world. That's pretty good. That, I think, is a meaningful uh, thing you can build on, is that they had played really terribly through three quarters and they were still within striking distance. You play a little bit better. At that point, C.J. McCollum was 6 of 18. Damian Lord's 3 of 10 through three quarters. Uh, you know, you're talking about your, your best two players have missed 19 shots. They've only connected on two threes. And you're only down seven on the road. I mean, I, I think you are down six on the road. I think you have to take that. That's, that is absolutely a positive. The other positive was the Blazers got to the free throw line. Uh, they've got to find a way to manufacture points. Uh, I think that's kind of a corny term, but they, they, they got to find a way to get some easy ones. Uh, they haven't shot the ball well in what seems like forever. And by that, I mean they haven't shot the ball well since they shot incredibly well in Game 6 against the Nuggets to save their season. But now they've had back-to-back games where they've really been um, off from three-point range. So they got to find a way to get to the free-throw line. Damian Lillard did that okay. I thought Rodney Hood did a good job of getting the free-throw line. He's really using his, his, his length to be valuable. He, he took seven free-throws in this game, almost... I believe all of them came where he just got a guy on him in the mid-range and just went up a little earlier before the crowding defender figured it out. I think that's that's a positive. Getting to the free throw line. They they they're not a team that shoots a ton of free throws, but if they can continue that trend, and I think that you know, 
31 attempts. I don't know if they took any in garbage time. I don't I don't believe they did. But you know, 31 attempts, you got to get some easy points against the Warriors. That'll do it. The other thing is is, is that they turn the ball over just an an inordinate amount. Like the Warriors the Warriors thrive in the open court. Uh, they force a bunch of turnovers. They'll go for they'll go for steals every so often. But this was even by uh, the Blazers, it's been pretty bad standards. This was pretty bad. So I don't think they, they turned the ball over 18% of their possessions. I don't think they'll repeat that. I think they can cut down on just like some careless ones and save themselves a few points. You know, you give up 31 points on, on turnovers. I think you can I think you can clean those things up easy. That's why it's a silver lining, because those are some, just some simple things. A couple dumb a couple dumb, dumb turnovers take a few points off the board. The other positive is the Blazers grabbed a bunch of offensive rebounds, 16 all told. That's about 34% of their off- available offensive rebounds. Or uh, That's pretty good. That's where their advantage is against the Warriors. It's crushing the glass. It's why Cantor, I think, can play a little bit, because his ability to beat up on them on the glass, particularly the way that uh, the Warriors play defense, where they're going to send, you know, they, they, they are not hiding it they're going to send a ton of attention at Damian Lillard either just straight up sending a double team like they did in a couple late clock situations where they sent two defenders at him and kind of zoned off behind him or every time he comes around a screen they're going to send two defenders that means more than anything guys got to make the right play on the back half but also that there's just less bodies for the Warriors particularly if one of those people is a big or if it's Draymond Green or Iguodala there's just less bodies on the back half to go get rebounds I think the Blazers showed that they can get some offensive boards in this game and I think that can continue to be a strength those are my silver linings they played poorly and they were still within striking distance they can't possibly turn the ball over this many more times, and they probably have an advantage on the offensive glass. I don't know if the free throw stuff is repeatable necessarily, but I do think that it is uh, a key to staying in these games if you're not going to shoot well. And I can't imagine... I, the Blazers probably will have a game where they shoot well, but it's there's there's no guarantee. The Warriors made more than half their three, 17 of 33, uh, you can say that that's unsustainable, but if you just look at the quality of shots they took, it feels pretty sustainable. I feel like Jonas Rekbo probably won't have as good a game as he had in Game 2. That's another silver lining. He had uh, nine off the bench, five boards, uh, like looked like a useful player. It was kind of astonishing. He's been bad all season for them. He had more points in this game than he had in the rest of the playoffs. I think those are some silver linings. I also think... This game shows you how good the Warriors are. Like, the Blazers are on a special run, and I don't think they'll get bullied out of Game 2 the kind of way that they got bullied at the end of Game 1 just because of how tough they've been in the playoffs and how having a day off after seeing it and feeling it and watching some film, they'll be able to make some, like, actual real adjustments. They'll be able to to get much sharper on the game plan. This sort of mental fatigue I mentioned at the top of the show. I think they can get over that hump. At least somewhat. They can at least be a little sharper. But the Warriors are really good. I mean, that's if, if anything else, Game 1 showed us the Warriors are really good. They did all this without Kevin Durant. I don't think he plays in Game 2. 
And like I said, there's some speculation that he could sit out uh, as many as four games. Who knows? But you got to take advantage of when he's out because as much as uh, as much as the Warriors are maybe less fun when Kevin Durant plays, they're not worse. Maybe Clay Thompson is like statistically worse and he has less value when Kevin Durant plays, but the team isn't worse. Warriors defense is really good. It's not going to get a ton easier in game two, but uh, I think there's some reason to believe the the Blazers can play them better. They can definitely play them smarter and some minor changes and I guess it's maybe even a major change, but some changes in how you cover things defensively and how you treat the Warriors bigs and how you treat pick and rolls, a couple lineup tweaks and not being as just horrifically careless with the basketball, you can make this a series. You probably lose if you go down 2-0 as the lower seed. But man, <laughs> you still won an Oracle and the sort of we believe fervor that had taken over the city after Game 7 really comes back for what would be a wild Game 3. It'd be fun if there was a wild Game 3 in Portland. I think the tweaks are there. I think the team will obviously know what to do. Should be an interesting game on Thursday night. I appreciate all you guys for listening. Shout out to all my loyal listeners like George, Nate, Jen. Appreciate you guys. Tell your pals about Lockdown Blazers. They can find it wherever they get podcasts. Google Play, Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Stitcher. It's also streaming on Spotify. Game 2 is Thursday. I'll talk to you guys soon.